Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I don't sleep and I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man. Welcome back to another episode with your hosts, Megan Gesner and Harini. I did it right this time. <laughs> Hell yeah, bitch. <laughs> I learned. I grow and I learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just took us uh, 63 episodes. It is. That said. <laughs> All that matters is I'm capable uh, of learning. <laughs> Uh, yes, and that is what is important. It's Always important. keep that skill. <laughs> so, uh, is this episode sixty-three or this is episode I know 60 that we've full. sixty-four? Sixty-four. All yeah, right. we are grinding we through are, this year. Yeah, we are. <laughs> I don't know why. Episodes. I feel like we're making more content this year than ever before, but we are doing it. I we're think we're just thing. like in this rhythm, and we I are. don't want to get out of it. Once Same. we do get out of it, I'm like, we're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> fall apart but uh, i know no, i'm proud of us proud of us yeah that Good said job. episode 64 this mm-hmm. is the third and final Woo-hoo-hoo. installment of our oxy coffin series harini will be wrapping us up today <laughs> i guess what's the most updated news or you know tail end of the opioid epidemic slash dope sick yes. story and what's most current and how or where the Sackler family is at and what's been going on with them in terms of their bankruptcy, kind of giving spoilers away. But I know that that's one of the most current situations with them. So yeah, Harini, it's all you, boo. (laughs) Yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm I'm ready. Let's go. All right, let's do it. I wanted to give a quick shout out. I don't know if Megan, you saw this because I came to the horrifying conclusion recently that whenever we post something on our Instagram stories, it gets directly posted to my personal Facebook page, which is fine. But you know, we post a lot of like poison stuff. So I I think people are like, what the heck is wrong with this girl? But anyways, so as part of like the promotional series of these episodes, we posted a photo of dope sick on our Mm -hmm. Instagram and it got posted, of course, at my Facebook. But it was really cool mm-hmm. because I don't know if you saw this, Megan, but one of our old sweet mates, I'll just say her first name, Anna commented on this. Did you see this? Whoa. No, yeah. I didn't. I uh, I should really have my notifications set to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To... I mean, it would be set Whoa. to like my notifications. Like you'd just be like right, alerted right. to my stuff. But anyways, I can read it for you so you don't have to go there. Okay, so Anna says, my cousin was actually in this show referring to Dope Sick as an extra and my mom's Aww. friend wrote the book the series is based on. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay. Yes, and she Sorry, just says, I'd love to listen to your coverage. Oh, no, yeah, she's like, I yeah. said, she says, I'd love to listen to your coverage of the topic. Very cool. So I just that's wanted to start so out rad. with that because I thought that was awesome. No, that's, that is really cool. Well, throwback. I haven't heard that name in such a long time. And mm-hmm. like, that's dope. Thank you, Anna, for commenting on our post and like, staying engaged with us. We love you. <laughs> Yeah. So. so if you do listen to this, shout out to Anna. Hi. We miss you. Okay. Now into some druggy stories. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's go. So where we left off was really the OxyContin scandal, everything with the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma. But now we're really going to transition into the current state of affairs with the opioid epidemic, which is really not mm-hmm. about OxyContin. It's more about fentanyl. Um, but mm-hmm. we'll we'll make our way 
over to that. So I want to start out with this man. His name is Joe Ranazizi. He was working for the FDA at this time, and he is a huge, huge proponent of cracking down on the opioid epidemic. That's basically his life work. And this is just like the context that we're in now. Opioid overdoses have increased during the pandemic specifically, and Mm -hmm. it's more with fentanyl, as we already know. So opioid Mm -hmm. deaths are up 20% since the start of the pandemic, and that's only continued to rise since then. Although other companies have sold opioids, the actual opioid epidemic did start with Purdue Pharma. They essentially opened the floodgates to this wild, wild west of selling opioids for a massive profit. Mm. Okay, this whole situation is also being reported by many different news outlets. And one particular person at The Post, he was writing a story on the opioid crisis and epidemic regarding fentanyl. And he wanted to get a person who was more on the inside. And he talked to this retired DA agent, Joe Ranazizi. So Mm. let's talk about Joe. Joe went to pharmacy school. He gets his PharmD and then he immediately goes and applies to law enforcement. So he's in law enforcement for a few years. And after that, he gets hired by the DEA, which was ultimately his final goal. He liked to learn about Mm -hmm. drugs, but he also wanted to be on the government side of things to actually initiate change. Mm. So once he was in the DEA, he gets hired in their diversion and control division. The diversion and control division What they do is they make sure that drugs are not diverted to the black market and that they stay within the legal supply chain. Before he leaves the DEA, he repeatedly speaks in front of Congress to warn them of the misuse and abuse of opioids. Like I said, it is his life's passion to disseminate that kind of information. Mm. What begins to happen during the 2000 to 2001 timeframe, internet pharmacies start to pop up. You could go on your computer, type, quote, hydrocodone without a prescription, and you get hundreds of searches that just pop up. What typically happens is you would click the link, and then there's going to be a survey. The survey will do several pain-related questions just to assess what kind of pain you have, and then you buy the drugs, and it gets shipped out to you. Real doctors were approving these meds to be sent to people. As an example, it would be a doctor on the East Coast, prescribing an opioid to someone on the west coast and then the drugs would get shipped out from a pharmacy in the midwest that's literally how it would happen Mm -hmm. if if you're looking at it from the macro it's basically an organized drug trafficking situation Mm -hmm. nowadays that is illegal per the board of pharmacy and it's also a big reason why pharmacists have to take a law exam in addition to their clinical state board exam and not physicians because at the end of the day the buck stops, so to speak, at the pharmacy because they are the ones that decide, do I dispense this or not? The way that this was working and the way that they were trafficking all these drugs, quote unquote, is are these doctors. It really began to start with the doctors. They were selling these these prescriptions, these opioid prescriptions for a ton of money. Sometimes they were selling it for sex. It was just like a whole big thing. And then these drugs would go down the I-75 from Florida down to the Appalachias to Ohio. This particular highway was called the Oxy Highway. 
And you don't really need anything to get these prescriptions. That was a big part of it. It was essentially like a pill mill. You go to this clinic, get a very cursory exam. They ask you maybe like, oh, a few questions. They're like, okay, we'll give you a, a dose of OxyContin. Do you want methadone? Do you want a Xanax? And it was just like this checklist of things. And then you go home. This is where the law gets a little bit more muddy, but essentially it is within the doctor's legal right to write a prescription. You can't really stop the doctor from writing these prescriptions, but a pharmacist can. Hmm. If a pharmacist gets a prescription that they feel is off, they have a legal requirement and a right to investigate these red flags before dispensing. So some of Hmm. these red flags could be a prescription for opioids with out an indication on it, meaning an indication meaning like what is it being used for? Or they do have an indication, but it's illegitimate, meaning mm. they're writing this pain prescription for a patient that who has cancer and they don't have cancer. You're kind mm. of like, what? That doesn't make any sense, right? And then you have people who have multiple doctors prescribing the same thing, but from many different doctors. Why do you need the same prescription from four different doctors? And lastly, you have a person who's traveling 200 miles just to get this prescription dispensed at your pharmacy. I don't care if you are the best pharmacist in all of the lands, ain't nobody Mm. traveling 200 miles just to get a prescription filled by you. Mm. Huge red flag. So there's one particular CVS that was known as the go-to CVS. Mm. They get investigated by the DEA. A DEA agent goes to the pharmacist on staff that day and goes, don't you think it's strange that all these patients are coming to you with out-of-state prescriptions and they're not local to the area and they're lining up at your store every day at 8 a.m.? The pharmacist says, oh, well, we cut off our sales at 2 p.m. And the agent's confused. Like, what what does that even mean? Pharmacist explains that we cut off our sales at 2 p.m. so we can save some medications for our real patients. Oh, (laughs) Like, that just all sounds wrong anyway. <laughs> I mean, the honesty of it all is just shocking. I know. <laughs> I mean, you get They're some like, we're not points. hiding anything, clearly. <laughs> I know. Some points like, for honesty. Very forthright. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, <laughs> nevertheless, there's a big crackdown after that involving 500 right. law enforcement officers and 105 arrests, many of them being prescribing doctors. Mm-hmm. Although doctors were culprits in aiding the opioid epidemic, it's really the pharma companies, again, that allowed this to play out. Mm. One of those people is John Kapoor. He is the founder of Insys. Do you know this name? I do not know okay. this name. Okay. No. no, you like tilted your head like you knew. <laughs> the last name Kapoor made me like intrigued. Oh, That's yeah, all. yeah. <laughs> like John Kapoor, founder of Insys, a pharma company that released Subsys, very creative, a fast acting <laughs> oral fentanyl spray. And as we know, Uh, fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine. Mm. So when substance enters the market, the FDA only approves it for a very narrow group of patients. Cancer patients who are experiencing breakthrough pain. So not even cancer patients who are experiencing pain. It has to be they're they're already on something else and they're experiencing even more pain. That's the only time that they can get this. Mm-hmm. The, so, so the term breakthrough pain is still being used in a way where, like, this is something that's clinically accepted. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right. Okay. Yeah, and it's only meant to happen for I, the the term breakthrough pain is meant to really narrow the group mm-hmm. of people who get these mm-hmm. really highly abusive 
opioids. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> in 2013, a whistleblower letter was sent to the DA's office in Boston. And just some context, why Boston, why that DA's office? Boston is known to successfully prosecute high-profile healthcare cases. So a lot of whistleblower mm. cases across the country actually get sent to them because they mm. have that track record. So Substance is launched in March of 2012, and then in 2013, this letter gets sent to them. Again, launched under a very narrow indication. Kapoor calls this launch the worst fucking pharma launch of all time. That is a quote. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wanted a larger indication. He felt, quote, pain was pain. How was cancer pain different to back pain, etc.? So he didn't understand, like, why should it only be given to this small group of patients? Kapoor fires his VP of sales and his other sales reps. They're not doing their jobs. Of the remaining, he tells them to email doctors asking them to prescribe more subsists and at higher doses. So kind of the same blueprint of Purdue Pharma. Mm. Mm -hmm. The DA office in Boston assigns two federal prosecutors to the case. Fred Wyshak, who is a total legend, he prosecuted Whitey Bulger and the mob, the Boston mob. And Mm. just a quick fun callback, I don't know if it's fun, to call all the way back to our LSD cases or LSD Mm. episodes in the beginning. Whitey Bulger, when he was in jail, he was experimented on with LSD against his knowledge or without his knowledge. Interesting. He talks about how it really kind of fucked him up. Damn. So, okay. Call back. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. According to Fred Wyshak, in these kinds of high profile cases, you need someone on the inside to feed you information that's going to help you nail the whole thing. Otherwise, they are, it's so hard to penetrate within them. Right. Right. And the person that they were targeting was the new VP of sales at Insys, Alec Berlikoff. This dude is an interesting guy. Le- like, for real. Okay. Okay, I'm Googling him now as you speak. Okay, Megan, also, I don't think that we watched the same documentary because after I finished no? the whole thing, I was I was listening intently for this poem and I was like, where the heck is this poem? So I don't think it's the same one. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to share you a snippet <laughs> okay. of the poem. Maybe can see if I can cut the audio and give it to Brayden and we'll just play at the end. Uh, I would love that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that would be a good thing to, sh- to share. Okay. Anyway, so back to Alec Burlikoff. What an interesting dude. So Alec Burlikoff, he, has, he pursues a psychology degree. He doesn't really use a psychology degree at that moment like after he graduates instead he goes and becomes like this phys ed teacher where he teaches kids basketball in Boca Raton Florida at this private school parents of the kids at the school are insanely wealthy like beyond what you could even imagine wealthy but he doesn't think about it much but after a while he's like I gotta do something more with my life so then he leverages the wealthy contacts he makes to get his foot in the door for a sales rep position at Eli Lilly selling Prozac, which is an antidepressant that's still still used heavily today. From there, he bounces around, goes to other big pharma companies until he lands something at a company called Cephalon. This was his first Mm. taste of quote-unquote small pharma. They sold Mm. a drug called Actique, which was a fentanyl lollipop designed Mm. for Mm -hmm. terminal cancer patients who have difficulty swallowing pills. So they just have to like basically suck on it and releases the medication. But Burlikoff figured out ways to get doctors to prescribe it more and promote it off label to patients who don't have cancer or don't even have cancer Mm. pain. John Kapoor at Insys likes this guy's tactics. So he hires him on the spot immediately. 
Mm. But Alec is clever. You would think he would embellish or lie to get his sales, but he's strangely the opposite. He's super direct and super honest about what he is selling and why. And this is what's really interesting. Mm. So in the documentary series, he's the one talking and telling us all this information. Straight shooter, Jewish guy. And he's just like, I'm going to just talk. Mm -hmm. He's he's a car salesman on steroids. And what he Mm -hmm. does when he walks into the office, the doctors will ask him, be like, hey, Alec, you're going to try to sell me subsists for other patients who don't have cancer pain. And he'll go, doctor, you know that subsist is only allowed to be prescribed to patients who have cancer that are experiencing breakthrough pain specifically who are Mm. 18 years and older but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day doctor you can do whatever you want you're the doctor the way he says is like he's exactly what he's supposed to say what they're trained to Mm -hmm. say but at the end of the day is like but you're the doctor so you do what you think is best his it's what is that tactic it's a tactic when it's like it's you're making someone think it's their idea that's, totally. That, that seems like it, that's his tactic. And that yeah. can work a lot it of the time. It can times. work. And it did. Yeah. That's where he's using his psychology degree. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yes. so bizarre, Megan, because the next the next thing he talks about is he talks about how you how you get good sales. And all of, all it is is knowing how to read people and knowing how to talk mm-hmm. to people. And not right. just that, but knowing how to talk to different kinds of people. And this is what's mm-hmm. so wild about it. In my current position, I did a training. It's not for a position I'm in, but you know, our fellowship directors thought it would be a great experience for us to go through a training for an MSL role. An MSL is is like the counterpart, I should say, not the opposite, the counterpart to sales. They're the medical science liaisons, meaning they understand the data and the science really, really well, and they don't mm-hmm. promote the drug. They just they talk to doctors and they tell you, they just talk science with you, right? right. Part of that training is reading people and understanding how to talk to people and knowing people's personalities. So we did a personality test and they basically Mm. bucket you into four different categories, blue, yellow, green, and red. And he Mm -hmm. talks, he says it perfectly. So after doing the training, I'm like, okay, he nailed, he totally nailed it on the head. He says, blue people are very analytical. They are a little more shy and reserved. They don't really want to like talk to you about their family life or what they do outside of it. They just want to get to the science and to the data points. Mm. They're all data driven. So that's the, those are kind of people. And he says, I don't want to go to those kinds of doctors because I know that they just want to talk about the data and I don't have the data that they're looking for because we don't have mm. data that shows it's good for other patients outside of cancer. So I'm not going to them. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, mm-hmm. yellow people. Yellow people are very gregarious. They are people pleasers. They love being the life of the party. They want you to like them. And I don't go mm. to them either because they want to make sure everyone feels included. So they're not going to only prescribe my drug. They're going to go down their whole rotation of opioids. So I'm not going to go to him. Mm. Then he mm. goes to green. Green people, they're like the earthy people. And, you know, they're they're more holistic. They're not going to mm. like my drug anyway. So I'm not going to go to them. Then he says my reds. My reds, they're my CEOs. They are very driven. They only give you 25 seconds of their time. They're try- They're mm. all about business. They're the mm. ones that I target because they want to make money. They want to bring in more patients. They want to bring in more prescriptions. And that's who I want mm-hmm. as my customer. So that's who mm-hmm. he goes to. And that's how he makes mm. crazy sales for uh, Insys. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to like chuckle at the end, but it is. No, it's it very is. Interesting. Yeah. And the I way he says it, I'm like, <laughs> it, he says it so bluntly, but it makes sense. I'm like, yeah, if that's what your goal, like yeah, you're doing it right, you know? Yeah. 
they go and also mm-hmm. kind of I, I i like the breakdown but at the end of the day i'm like it just sounds like he's like money speaks well with money yep. so those yep. are the people i'm gonna target <laughs> and but that's the goal if at the end yeah. of the day the way that that company was set up there was no right. uh salary cap you're basically mm. commission-based so the more sales right. you bring in the more money you make so i was like all right if that's the name of the game that's my goal i'm just gonna mm-hmm. target people who are gonna help me make more money So they go on to have one of the most successful IPOs and the most popular stock to invest in. And a big Mm. chunk of the reason for that is because of Alec. He is the VP of sales. But a big issue with fentanyl and sepsis in particular is that it was expensive. The Mm. 1600 microgram dosage from sepsis is $15,000 a month. That's a lot. That's also... I, I... this is all new to me. It's, I don't mm-hmm. know any yeah. of this. It's not, you know, this is new knowledge. So sure. I guess I am surprised to hear that because I have a lot of knowledge about illicit fentanyl use. And I know that illicit fentanyl use is so high right now because of how affordable it is. Mm. For affordable in a sense uh, that the drug distributors, it's cheaper for them to like use fentanyl in their prescription, illicit uh, legal prescription drugs and cocaine and all that. Um, so that's what's interesting yeah Uh, that that legally or in this time period it's expensive so i wonder how that's those are the parts missing for me where i don't understand how it changes when it goes into the black market no that's a great question and you know you i have to do more research on it but you could still be right like even in this time frame like regular fentanyl meaning like the the tablet form of fentanyl might still be very cheap in fact i'm I'm pretty sure it was if not then definitely now but what's what's different about this one in particular and why it's so expensive is one it's a brand new drug it just got launched Mm. and it's a totally different brand new formulation so it's a Mm. spray so having thing in a tablet form is very not i don't want to say run of the mill but it's like the norm right so Mm -hmm. having in a different formulation is more expensive requires more an r&d blah 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 blah. list goes on so in their minds they're um accruing the cost in their head of like how much it should cost per month with a new launch so it's not it's not the case across all uh, fentanyl formulations but got it i would definitely say the tablet form is would be the cheapest got it got it so in order to get it covered by insurance it has to be a prescription under the fda approved indication of cancer patients with breakthrough pain but most of these patients don't have cancer so how the heck are they going to get the money to pay for this, right? The only mm. way they can pay for it is if the insurance companies are like, you know, yes, we'll approve it. You have cancer mm. and you have breakthrough pain. Mm-hmm. But then these prescriptions start coming in for patients and the insurance companies are like, wait, you don't have cancer. Like, I'm not going to pay for mm-hmm. this, right? Mm-hmm. So Subsys started an insurance team. Like they start a whole new division, which they would call insurance companies all day and pretend to be the patient and lie to them to Whoa. get the insurance company to pay for their medication. This blew my freaking mind, man. That's wild. So yeah. they did, they went this route. Like yeah, that was they their, went, they went their there. lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of just lying about the drug, they're like, we're just <laughs> going to pretend that we're our patients and lie to the insurers. So yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. And I'll go more into detail, like how they did it. Mm-hmm. But this is not like this exists in the sense, like helping, like the pharmaceutical companies will often help patients 
get mm-hmm. coverage for their meds because especially if it's still brand name it is expensive and some of these right. drugs are very life-saving like some patients really need it you know mm-hmm. like for example insulin there are mm-hmm. there are people who will just spend all day just h- helping patients get the coverage that they need so it's, right. it's not so right. damn expensive right I've done that before at the pharmacy. I've I've been on the yeah. phone calls with so many insurance companies on behalf of the patient and helping them because they're in the hospital in a bed half unconscious. They're not going to have time to call, right? Right. So right. there are like patient assistant programs that are still in place mm-hmm. today and it's very useful. This is mm-hmm. not legal. <laughs> like this, this is, is not this legal. Is, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. So mm-hmm. not only pharmacists like yourself have done that that makes sense it's a patient assisted program Mm -hmm. but it is common for a pharmaceutical company to also advocate for someone who's using their drugs yes uh okay i wouldn't say that they would be calling on behalf of the patient but i would say most pharmaceutical companies have a division called uh, patient advocacy or something like that where they will basically work with hospitals or clinics where they can set up like a patient assistance program where then like the pharmacist or whoever the medical provider at that clinic can be like okay we can enroll you in this patient assistant program where they help you like reduce the cost or whatever it might be got it so i i'm just was clarifying Mm -hmm. so i can really see the difference between what insist was doing versus what is the norm for pharmaceutical sure. companies. So Insys was like directly speaking to insurers, uh, insurance companies, yes. not going through like a patient advocacy program that they might have worked out with a pharmacy or mm-hmm. something. And not only and not only that, first of all, they're impersonating a patient. Like they're actually, they're right. not even saying I'm calling on behalf of a patient. I am the patient, right. which is, you know, wrong. And on top of right. that, they are manipulating the system by lying and saying they are basically right. getting approval or insurance approval for an indication that does not exist. Meaning they're saying right. all these patients have cancer when they don't. So there's many yeah. layers to this that is totally illegal. That should should never be happening. So walk me back mm. one more time. Sure. So how did it even get to this point? So I, I understand the whole, they had this very specific drug label where it it's, not like the Oxycontin situation where they were very clear about the drug label. It's for cancer patients with this breakthrough mm-hmm. pain. But then these prescriptions are being sent out to people who do not have cancer mm-hmm. or ha- or fall under this label right. definition. Right. And those patients, why are they being prescribed it? Is it just because healthcare professionals were like, okay, wink, wink. I hear you, yeah. Alec, whatever your last name is. <laughs> okay, we'll buy your drug and wink, wink. I won't use it. For non-cancer patients. Is that what's going on? Like healthcare professionals are doing it. Yes and no. It's it's part of it is basically what's happening is these pharmaceutical reps, so sales reps like Alec Berlikoff, they're coming into doctors' offices, they're telling them about the drug, like, hey, this is actually just for cancer patients who have breakthrough pain, but it is a fantastic pain drug, and we believe that anyone should be getting pain relief. And as a doctor, you know, I can't tell you to prescribe for anything besides what's on our FD label, but you can. Right. So what that means is the doctor can prescribe in a uh, subsist for off label mm. indications, meaning whatever is not mm-hmm. on the FDA label. So the doctors, whether they're being bribed with money or, you know, mm. you know, under like what they're I, called kickbacks. I, yeah. Right. Right. They I was now, just going to ask, mm-hmm. 
sorry, I was just going to ask like, what's in it for the doctor? Because right. a healthcare professional must understand the process that would eventually happen if they were to prescribe this drug to a non-cancer patient. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I'm sure even if I was getting a bribe or something, I'd be like, well, how is how are they going to deal with that? It's not like they're going to impersonate the <laughs> the patient <laughs> over the phone to insurers, you know, like I just, right. it, yeah. So they must, so, okay. So there is like quid pro quo payment. Absolutely. There's always going to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're both getting something out Mm -hmm. of it for sure. I think there's also I think there's also just definitely doctors who believe, you know, why should this only be given to cancer patients? Like I I'm having this patient who has had chronic pain. There are people who like Carol who were in severe Mm -hmm. car accidents. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. also in severe pain and they can also experience breakthrough pain. But this is not being able to be indicated for them. So from their perspective, they're like, from my medical opinion, I believe this mm-hmm. patient has severe enough pain where I think mm-hmm. they could benefit from subsist, even though it's off label. Right. So I'm going to prescribe it. And it also doesn't hurt that I'm getting paid. Right. Right. So right. it's kind of like a mixture of the two, uh, depending on the doctor. So mm. how are they able mm. to do this? They call the insurance company. They do all this stuff. They, they talk to the insurance company. They know exactly what to say. And in order to, get authorization which is called like a prior authorization to get this approved med paid for they need to know more about the patient so what they Mm -hmm. did is the is insis talks to the doctors be like i can help get your patient on this med but i need more information about them so these doctors literally shared personal health information they shared their patient's medical profile and medical history Mm. with these people who are just like you know la di da in their cubicles at this pharmaceutical company and they pretend they get enough information where they're able to pretend to be the patient and they literally say yeah i have cervical cancer i have breast cancer i have whatever cancer and i have breakthrough pain i need this drug right. and nine times out of ten that stamp of approval and it's virtually free yeah cue Which the Cue the soundbite of that one video that kind of went viral for a hot moment of that one lady trying to rent a boat for the day and someone's videotaping her and she's like, you can't videotape me. And the videotaper <laughs> was like, why not? And she's like, because of my HIPAA or whatever. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I, I we do. Just put that soundbite in there. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? You cannot record me. That is against my HIPAA law. Give me, ma'am, give me that. That's exactly <sighs> right. Yeah. They, violation of HIPAA on so many levels and that's why I'm saying like mm-hmm. it is almost like this weird team effort between the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies right. and unbeknownst to them the insurance companies working together to basically run this pill mill and this is in 2013 was that the timeline that you gave Ooh, like good question yeah 2013 to 2015 that blows my mind. I'm like, have we learned nothing? <laughs> but to be not fair, I guess, per se, but like the Sackler family was brought to court in 2007 and 2020. So I guess in some ways, mm-hmm. it really isn't until this to- point in time that we're really kind of like the general public. I'm sure lots of people knew what had went down with oxycontin and how it was promoted falsely in the fraud it's weird to hear that this happened like another seven years after the oxycontin situation but 
in all it's again these were in fairness but like yeah i feel like as a culture as a population or maybe even our our generation alone we're not really understanding of it until this moment in time so i guess that kind of makes sense why this would still happen and also to repeat what you said in the last episode it's Mm -hmm. that feeling of when people like the Sackler family can get away with stuff like this or have in uh, you know in relationship with the FDA or whatever allows others to see the potential of how they can cross the line further and Mm -hmm. I think this is a total example of that (laughs) so it's a permission slip it's absolutely permission slip like go ahead do your worst even right right they have we'll just find other ways yeah exactly exactly okay so i actually took this part out initially but i'm going to put it back in because it gets important later there Mm -hmm. is a woman called sunrise lee and basically alec talks about all the stuff this is not exist anymore it's actually illegal now it's been illegal for some time Mm -hmm. but back in the day maybe last 10 like 10 years ago let's say 10 years ago Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. would be able to as the drug rep or the sales rep you could wine and dine doctors like no tomorrow and by wine and dine i mean like you if you take them out if they text you at 3 a.m and they're like i want to go out you take them to a nightclub you spend as much Mm -hmm. money you spent they want to go to the best restaurant i don't care where or when you take them out you pay for the dinner and you talk to them Mm -hmm. about the science whatever whatever Mm -hmm. it takes this is what Alec is telling. He's like, I'm basically on call to these doctors at any time of the day and whatever they mm-hmm. need, I I provide. So one of the places that they would go to all the time is a strip club, which is also like a five star steak restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I am making space. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. Any comments? Okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> no, no comments. No comments. Okay. I'm just like, okay, strip club and good steak. Strip club Hell and yeah. steak. I mean, what else do <laughs> you need? So, especially when you're talking about freaking molecules. So, <laughs> I know. That's, I think that's why I made the face. I was like, uh, I don't know. Like, I... I Stop science, baby. I just could I would not be able to even... And I th- that's that's... I'm probably saying what's obvious but in my head i'm like there's no way they're talking science i would not be able to talk science at all in that setting no. i'd have a steak in front of me and strippers yeah. like uh-uh. i'm not gonna be talking data so I don't, I don't know if alec really talked data but if he did then damn he's really dedicated to his cause Dude, i mean it's one of those situations where like you ask your dad if you can go on a sleepover while he's watching the football game and he just says yeah sure like that's exactly the same thing like you take him to a strip club take these doctors like hey prescribe more substances yeah sure yeah. You know, Alec is like his uh his the doctor. He's whining and dining, is getting a laugh dance, and he's like, "Oh, by the way, we're going to pretend to be the patients and call the insurance companies when you prescribe this." And the guy's like, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah. that sounds good. Okay, where's my steak?" Yeah, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do it, let's do it." <laughs> Your brilliant, brilliant plans. All right, he's like, "Yes, yes. Are you talking to me or the stripper?" <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. But basically, yes, that's what Anyways. happened. So they're at this strip club slash five-star restaurant <laughs> and mm-hmm. <laughs> alec frequents this place a lot per his clients but he's in he's in there tonight and this woman sunrise lee she's talking she is a dancer at this club and she knows alec and uh they talk a little bit and they basically sort of form a relationship not like a sexual one but 
he talks to her. He's interested in her and he wants to know more about her. And he's like, hey, like, I think I have a position for you at the company. I think you'd be a great mm-hmm. regional sales manager. And the way that he mm-hmm. describes it is like, what she does every single day is what I do every single day, just in a different setting. Mm. You know, she understands right. how to cater to people. She knows how to talk to them, knows what they like in a matter of two seconds. Like she's not going to go hang out and mingle with some guy for four hours if they're not going to pay up. And she can decide right. that in a matter of a minute, less than a minute, mm-hmm. maybe. And then she'll go around right. and go on to her next opportunity. Right. So he's yeah. like, that's exactly what you need. Those are the qualities and skills you need in my job. So I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to hire her. She has a really interesting backstory. She basically was homeless. Like she has two other siblings. Her dad was on mm-hmm. the run. He stole them from the mom and they were on the run for mm-hmm. many a year until finally, like the law caught up with her dad. He gets arrested and they finally get taken back to her mom. And she's mm. pretty phenomenal. Like she even she's working three jobs. She's taking care of her brothers and sisters, but she's still on the honor roll at high school. And she's just trying mm. to make ends meet. And she gets emancipated at sixteen, and just she's just used to be on her own. And part of part right. of those jobs is like her becoming a dancer. She's like, you got to do what you got to do. Mm. And then she gets this opportunity from Alec. I'm, you know, from her perspective, she's very grateful, and she's like, this is my chance to get out and do one job and make a good living from this one job. Mm-hmm. Okay, so transitioning a little bit, when a company makes a drug, they aren't allowed to sell directly to pharmacies. They can sell to distributors, and those distributors can sell to the pharmacies. There are three main big distributors, even to this day, McKesson, mm-hmm. Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen. When I was at one particular rotation at my hospital, every day, what we would do is we would sit down and we would order all the drugs that we needed for the next day, every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's literally only coming from one of these three companies. Even at my, mm-hmm. when I worked my local pharmacy and retail, they would get drugs from McKesson. So they mm-hmm. quite literally have a monopoly on the entire country in the US. Yeah. Question, besides the, possibly the answer being simplified to just capitalism, <laughs> Uh, why is there the middleman of a drug distributor? Why can't a pharmaceutical company sell directly to a hospital or something? I yeah. mean, I again, I'm not in this world at no, all. Totally. I'm a n- not normal. Sorry, I'm a <laughs> uh, ignorant, uh, you know, person in the world that doesn't know these things. So, do you do you know the answer? You're not ignorant, Megan. <laughs> this is not something that anyone knows because it's not interesting but we're talking about it so that's why we're we're educating people about it but the reason is it's just think of it more as like a balance of power the pharmacy would have too much Mm. power if the pharmaceutical company was directly selling to the pharmacies there needs to be like sort of like a checks and balance system so they have Mm. a distributor so they they are the ones that hold the drugs and sell them to the pharmacies and it's kind of like a single check because what should be happening is the pharmacy, if they basically order X amount of pills or tablets, of, mm-hmm. let's just, since mm-hmm. we're talking about opioids, we'll talk about opioids. They order yeah. X amount of opioids every year. So the distributor has to sign off on that. And there's a whole legal system. There's like three different papers. You have to sign every single one and you have to keep copies of it for like three years. It's like this whole thing. The FDA mm-hmm. comes and checks you and audits you every year. So it's very like regimented. Mm-hmm. 
if the distributor gets a order from the pharmacy, which is way out of line, it's very suspicious, then it is the distributor's job to be like, I'm not going to file the sale. I'm going to file this away and report mm. it to the FDA or the DEA. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get into that, but it's more mm. just like a balance of power. Okay. All right. But then who checks them? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the FDA. The FDA. Yeah. audits I know. It's not, it's like few and far between, but essentially the FDA is in charge of auditing everybody, um, specifically mm. like the distributor and the pharmacies. <laughs> Yeah. So I feel so that what, I I think you know why I why I'm going like hmm, hmm. yeah I know I <laughs> know uh, I know the context anyway but thank you for Michelle's. answering my question I have been educated yes yes so hopefully there's more there's more education to be coming so uh, McKesson Cardinal Health and Amerisource Bergen they own ninety percent of the opioid market McKesson is the fifth largest company in the United States but you just wouldn't know it because they are quiet mm. quiet quiet. For mm. a good reason. Sneaky. These companies, <laughs> sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. These companies have parameters in place where they get alerted when something is suspicious with an order. So, this is what I was just talking about. For example, if a pharmacy has been ordering, like, say, 6,000 tablets of OxyContin every year for the last three years, and then the year after that, they suddenly order 4,000 tabs of OxyContin, that mm-hmm. is considered suspicious. And that is when they get flagged, it goes straight to the FDA, and they freeze that sale. But what would happen is the distributors would still fill suspicious orders and not file them. So Lyndon Barber, who is the associate chief counsel for the, F- for the DEA, they force Cardinal Health to shut down because they were part of this whole scandal. They were shuttling almost one million tablets of OxyContin to a certain CVS in Florida that was situated perfectly on a highway. So the way that this would work is these these. Uh, potential patients or whatever, they would come in and they would just do a drive-through. It'd be a drive-by, they would pick up their meds and they would just roll out. It was like this perfect Mm. system. A woman named Jamie Gorlick, whose deputy attorney general during the Clinton administration was later hired on retainer for Cardinal Health and basically asked her successor if it was absolutely necessary to come down so hard on Cardinal with all of these like legal, legal actions. Lyndon Barber and Ranazizi, Joe Ranazizi from the beginning, were pissed because they they were essentially being asked by the government, why are you going after Cardinal Health so strongly? And they're like, do I need to show you how many people have freaking died? Like, what kind of mm. question is that? Why are we going after people who are overselling opioids? Like, what? I don't even understand why you're even asking me that question. Mm. So February 2012, Ranazizi's team issues out an immediate immediate suspension order to everyone on their list, all these distributors across the country. Cardinal pays a $44 million fine and they have to stop their shipments for two years. Of course, this pissed Mm. Cardinal off. So they lobby for a new bill to be put in place that was a patient access law. And this law deemed that shutting down drug drug distributors prevents patients from receiving their life-saving medications. And that's not okay. There is like some truth to that, but obviously they're doing it for like an ulterior reason. Right. Lyndon Barber. And here's the craziest part. So that all happens. And after that, I don't know how much time after that, but Lyndon Barber, the chief counsel for the DEA, ends up and goes and works for Cardinal Health. And Mm. he uses his fiery passion that he once had to go against these Mm -hmm. strong companies. And he uses it to help the, the distributor companies. 
He testifies that the language in the law regarding drug distribution needs to be clearer and that the patient access law must be passed. This just blows Mm. everyone away. When they realize he went to like the other side, they're like, what's going on, dude? Yeah. I'm also like, y'all are fools for being (laughs) surprised. I I just, you know, like it's, uh, I'm, I'm learning. It is a revolving door. That is the industry. I am not saying that as this is a justification for all this nonsense and ultimate harm towards others. I said this in like a long time ago, an episode a while back, and I don't know what the context, what the context was, but I was just like, why are we still surprised about anything? (laughs) We got to stop being surprised and just being like, yeah, that was expected. Uh, So we're not doing anything to change it. So anyway, sorry. I I mean, like, no, definitely. And one of the people who, who originally worked with him was basically like, it's not pretty knowing how the sausage is made in government. Like you don't want to know like what Mm -hmm. goes on behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know and watch it happen, Mm -hmm. but it happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Tom Marino, congressman and Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, from Tennessee, and both of their states are hard hit by opioids, but the drug industry somehow gets them on board to champion their cause for this law. So Purdue Pharma, CVS, and all these other companies were paying these congressmen to get this bill passed. The amount Mm. that they are getting paid is astronomical for just like, this is what they were doing all this is what they're getting paid to do is the drug companies wrote questions that they were to be asked Mm -hmm. by the congressman to the dea so they paid them money just to ask Mm. questions but those are hard-hitting questions because it it really was the line of is this going to get passed or not marcia blackburn is paid nine hundred and sixty seven thousand dollars one other congressman Mm -hmm. is paid almost a million dollars and the list just goes on right Mm. The court hearing is shown, and these congressmen are grilling Ranazizi. This poor guy, mm. he is struggling just to like get them to listen to him. And he's like, he's thinking like, this is an open and shut case, you know. Like, I just got to show them the numbers, and those numbers don't lie. Like, we must not want people dying in our country from opioids. We should all be on the same page about this. But they are totally grilling his ass and be like what is your purpose of what are you even doing like this is a waste of time mm. you should just focus mm. on other things type of thing and right. uh marcia blackburn is the one who's really like hitting him with the questions she asked him a question like what is the scope of your program of like how you're tackling these issues and he starts listing out everything he's doing and she keeps cutting him off and he's like what the, what the hell man and he finally claps back he's like you asked me what i do on a daily basis and i'm telling you because she says oh this is laborious he's like well i'm telling you what i do and it is laborious what? yeah you asked the question yeah <laughs> and then she says i guess it's a sort like of a that. monday attitude sort of day thought you were doing a little bit more to help <laughs> and his face was wow. like oh <laughs> yeah, yeah poor yeah. guy poor guy oh, that is just so like gross it's gross I... yeah it's like unpleasant to hear i know like i don't know just immature tactics but like we've seen it like it's i'm like it just blows my mind I, i'm not surprised i'm not surprised but it's the concept of like someone in you know 
a really high place. I just, that's probably even in entertainment when it's depicted in a mm-hmm. cinematic way, when it's like someone in super high mm-hmm. power, but acting incredibly childlike and like bratty to just like put down someone else. Just, uh, it's so bad. Oh, taste. Man, that's like the, it's the weirdest feeling that I get. I just like, ah, oh, like, oh, it's just, it's just like you get paid so much, but you're resorting to this, like, lower level of thought right, you right. know that's what bugs totally. me i'm like you're smarter than that but okay. you're just being picky and mean yeah anyway your brain goes to goop when you get paid one million task questions <laughs> I know. apparently uh, so after this congress hearing ranazizi gets investigated for intimidating congress whoa if this and he tells them he's just like okay i can kind of see where this is going so he tells a congressman if this bill passes the blood is on your hands not mine all those people who are Mm -hmm. dying this very minute from opioids that's on you after that ranazizi gets ousted or forced into retirement and in 2015 his entire team gets replaced the bill gets passed Mm -hmm. unanimously and this is the kicker here it's a it's this particular bill if one member of Congress objects to the bill, the bill does not pass. Nobody objects. Mm. And wow. here's the sad truth. And this is what he, this congressman was talking, or not the congressman, this is what the DA uh, official was talking about when he says, it's not nice to know how the sausage is made. He's like, the truth of the matter right. is, and what people don't like to hear is that most of these legislators, they don't read the bills. They probably mm. didn't even understand what the language change meant. They just signed it. They right. got their money and that was it. The money talks. Right. Yeah. Right. Not to be cliche. No, it's true though. Yeah. People are dying and their own reps are giving it mm-hmm. an okay. And I want to be fair when I'm like, you know, talking about this. This was right. under the Obama administration and the DA mm-hmm, will talk mm-hmm. about this. They said, we tried to talk to so many people, including the president, and he would not talk to us. So they're mm. like something was something weird was going on. Yeah. And then there is a transition. So Trump comes into the presidency and that administration promises to do better. But it wasn't much better. He appoints Tom Marino, mm. the congressman who basically spearheaded the law that protected these opioid companies. Once the law passed, opioid prescriptions skyrocketed, but just for a little while. People were becoming more resistant to opioids and they were becoming more dependent. So even though the bill passed, doctors were starting to become more resistant finally to prescribing opioids. But this does not solve the problem that people were still addicted. And when they're not able to get it from their prescriber, this only leads patients to seek the drug by more illegal means. So international drug cartels begin, drug cartels begin to increase with the need for narcotics. This was really when fentanyl became the mainstay street drug. Oxycontin was out and fentanyl was in. And now we're going to go home to lovely San Diego because it is the fentanyl capital of the United States. The San Ysidro port, San Diego, Mm -hmm. is the busiest port in the United States. 2014, Mm -hmm. according to these law enforcement officials, is when the first bulk fentanyl was being trafficked across the border. And of course, it only grows from there. And what was interesting was that, or at least I thought it was interesting, the fentanyl that's coming through is mostly Chinese fentanyl. Like that's a huge Hmm. product of the market. And like I said, the problem is especially, especially big in San Diego. Rates of fentanyl use have increased by more than 2,000%. Mm. 
24-year-old college student, Sarah Fuzel, she is hooked on prescription painkillers and she's fighting addiction for the last five years. Then the pandemic hits and it shuts down her support network. She drops out of school. She overdoses and dies on fentanyl. Mm. When her parents get her belongings back, they realize the person who sold her the fentanyl might still be messaging her on her phone. So they give it to the Federal mm. Drug Task Force. So the Drug Task Force, they start texting the distributor and trying to lure him out to arrest him. And the, mm. they set up this like whole sting operation where they had one of their female law enforcement officers basically text him, be like, hey, I want to score some fentanyl. Can I get mm. some from you? And he's like, yeah, meet mm. me here. It's literally in like a Target park. It's literally in a Target parking lot. So they're just mm. like set mm. up there waiting for this guy to come out. But he doesn't show. Mm. So they they call it off for that for for that day. But then they get a hit for a meet near Horton Plaza in downtown San Diego. He shows up. They get him and they realize he's an addict himself and he sells drugs as well. So kind of like mm. he's able to you know, score him score for himself and then sell it off too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The officers call Sarah's father and they let him know what happened. And this honestly got me emotional. Sarah's father, he's like, mm. I thought he would be like very almost hysteric or crying. Like they, they just found out their daughter died, like maybe like a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's very calm. And he's like, the first thing he says is, wow, you know, everyone is a victim in this ex- except the manufacturers. Mm. He's just like, I just feel so mm-hmm. sad about this whole thing. And he's just thinking right. like, I don't know what's best. Like, I don't know what way is better. You know, it's torturous to have to go out every mm-hmm. single day and find a way to score just to be at peace for the smallest period of time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. this is happening, of course, all over the country. A medical examiner contacts federal prosecutors because there's so many dead bodies that are coming into his office have OD'd mm. on fentanyl. So he notifies the feds. And they're thinking like, you know, it's some cartel situation, some drug lord, whatever. It's not anybody like that. It's some local computer mm. repairman named Caleb Lanier. Mm. Caleb has an interesting story. So Caleb gets run over by a pickup truck in 2001. Really bad, really bad mm. accident. Of course, he's in a lot of pain from that. The doctor prescribes him 40 milligrams of Oxycontin and two milligrams of Xanax from day one. And which isn't even supposed to be prescribed together to begin with. So we're off to a great start. Mm. Caleb would just tell his doctor, hey, you know, I researched this drug. I'd really like to try it. And his doctor would just be like, sure, Caleb, and then prescribe it to him. Caleb's Mm. wife, Heather, she thought this was odd because it happened several times now where he would research something, be like, I'd like to try this. And she's like, okay, let me, and writes it for him. But Caleb just goes, oh no, she's my family doctor. She trusts me and she knows I do the research. Which I just laugh at because I'm like, it should be the opposite, you know, like she's the doctor, mm. you know, you're, you're trusting your, which is fine. Right. Like, I think so many patients are really well educated these days. They like to be more, more informed about what they put in their bodies. But at, at the end of the day, like, don't mm-hmm. rely on your patient to update you, you know, on like what's going on in the medical right. world. Like you should be the one doing right. your own research and deciding what this patient mm. should take or not take. So anyways, that's where it gets to. Caleb gets to a point where he uses so much Oxy that he would go through his entire month's prescription in four days. After that, Mm -hmm. he starts using heroin, but it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. So that's how he started fentanyl, to your Mm -hmm. point, Megan. It's cheaper because he could find it on the internet. 
So the feds mm-hmm. start this extensive surveillance on Caleb, and they find out he's using the dark web. And he's in direct contact with Chinese labs making fentanyl. He uses a woodshed in his backyard as his chem lab. He starts experimenting and tweaking the fentanyl to figure out which provided the best high and which lasted longest. And I honestly, I think about these things. I'm like, if only they used that, you know, that drive and passion for something else, man. Right, right. So interesting. Yeah. So Caleb reflects how he thought he was being a good father during this time, but now in his sobriety he just realized like how how insane that thought even was most Mm. heroin addicts he says shoot up shoot like shoot up two to three times a day he was shooting Mm. up 20 times a day Mm. caleb would buy chinese fentanyl for 3500 and he'd sell it for more than 300,000 for profit Mm. he started to hire people and he had a storefront that he used to launder the money hence a computer repair shop and it became right, this right. whole operation. They finally mm-hmm. nab him and they conduct a search warrant. In their search, they find several analogs of fentanyl that they've never even seen before. At this point, he's like at the peak of his whole operation. He's selling maybe twenty-five mm-hmm. dollars to $30,000 of fentanyl a week. And this wow. is the most wild part to me. And I, and I will say, I totally mm-hmm. believe her. Heather, the wife, she's shocked. She has no idea how he even did any of this. She's telling she's mm. telling the interview, like, I never even saw so much as a package get delivered to the house. Mm. He was always on the couch. He was always with us. And they didn't have anyone come over. So she's like, I don't even know how he freaking did this. Yeah. I feel like that's not uncommon yeah. based on the stories that yeah, we've done. Totally. Like, I immediately go back to our uh, sandwich poisoner and how, like, he had an underground lab and his family had no idea. Right. And I just, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and not a, and not, I, I'm just in awe. Mm-hmm. Like, you can be in awe, but still feel negatively no, about exactly. something. Exactly. It is, it's, um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. So, but Caleb says when he finally gets arrested, he is relieved because he just wants us to stop one way or the other. He knew it was either going to stop like one day he's going to OD and die or he's going to be forced to go Mm -hmm. with through withdrawal and get better, which eventually is what Mm -hmm. ends up happening. Let's get back to, to Alec Burlikoff. Substance Mm -hmm. is gathering so much heat from the feds. They're, they're like making moves left and right and such bad moves that the feds are like, it's just a matter of time before we, we get all of them. And it's becoming more and more like a Purdue Pharma situation where people are going to start being subpoenaed, going to trial, and hopefully go to jail this time. So the mm-hmm. interviewer asks Alec, were you ever scared like during this whole time? Because he's the whole time he's interviewed, Alex is cool as a cucumber. Mm-hmm. He's very chill, very suave. Right, right. And he, right. he says, I, I was fucking terrified. Every day I was mm. terrified. He says he would call his dad every single night and ask him, how the hell do I get out of this place? And his dad would be like, just mm. leave. But he, Alec knew yeah. he was like, I can't, I can't just leave. Right. John Kapoor basically had a death grip on this guy. He was ruthless and he really treated Alec like shit. If the numbers weren't there, mm. he would make his life miserable. So it was kind of like this, he was on this hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. Alec even started carrying a gun. He was a, he was that afraid that his time was running out. Mm. At the end of the day, Alec is a smart guy. He knew he was on a sinking ship and he was likely going to be the obvious choice for a scapegoat if everything goes down. 
He would ask the company millions of times, why did this doctor get arrested? I heard this patient died. What happened? Like asking all these questions. And he'd get the same response every single time, which was, Alex, stay in your sales lane. Don't worry about this. Mm. So he wasn't mm. really getting any info and that was driving him nuts. Uh, so he knows that she, the, the other she was going to drop any moment. So he notifies the Boston DA. He sends a message to the Boston DA. And mm. at this point, the Boston DA has been working this insist subsis case for several years without being able to crack anyone on the inside. So then one right. day. They just needed one that person. one person. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's like how what they say on The Amazing Race. They're like, I could win last or come in last every single leg, but I only need one first, which is at the very end. <laughs> it is true. But, but in The Amazing Race, if you keep getting last, you oh, sorry, sorry. get or, second or, to or, you know, not first. <laughs> so, yeah. Second to last or whatever, you're always going to be set back at That's the beginning. True. Like, oh, man, it would be your every leg of the race would be such you just a like struggle. Wanna f- man, I want to watch the Dude, amazing so race good. Now, so but, good. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love that though. I love that. Uh, that you only need the one first. Okay. So, um, yeah, he messages the DA and they get this ma- message from Alex saying, I fired my lawyer and I want to come in and talk to you guys. And the Boston DA talks mm. about how unusual this is. White collared potential criminals are almost always well represented and they don't need to go down this like whistleblower route. Right. So this was unique and they were not going to say no. So Alec makes a trip from Arizona, Boston, and he talks to the DA for four to five hours. And Alex mm-hmm. or Alex says to himself that he basically tells the DA a bunch of lies. He tells them the truth, but he leaves himself mm-hmm. out of it. He says it's like mm. one of those shows where it says it's based on a true story. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this guy is like something else, man. Yeah, it does bring the question: Why did he get rid of his lawyer? Then he could have still just told that. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. I need a freaking wild card. So the DA, the DA just they just let him talk. They let him talk for the five hours, Mm -hmm. and then after he's done, Mm -hmm. the DA looks him squarely in the face and goes, "I think you just spent the last five hours lying to us. It was good to talk to you, and we'll walk you out." Mm. So that's when he knows he's totally in the shitter. He's like, oh, well, that didn't freaking work. Right. So several months later, right. Alec is charged and indicted along with John Kapoor and Sunrise Lee. The evidence against mm-hmm. Alec is so overwhelming that his own lawyer is like, you need to cooperate and hope for a deal. Alec does yeah. it because he doesn't. That's what he says. He hates John Kapoor. And he's just like, I don't want to mm. take a deal. I'll do anything and plead guilty just so I don't have to sit at the same table as this guy. Alex mm. is sentenced to 26 months in prison. Sunrise Lee is one year in prison. And this is really unfortunate because basically what they imply or what she implies rather is they mm. hired certain people who they felt were like from quote unquote vulnerable populations that would do anything, mm. you know, to prove themselves type of thing. So she mm. was definitely manipulated mm. into certain situations that put her in a bad light or made her suable. You know, right. So in the court hearing, she she just talks about how the court painted her as this like stripper who was uneducated and she breaks down crying. She's like, this is the first that was the first time in my life that I wasn't able to persevere. And it just she's like, it Mm. just they just broke me down and reduced me to something that Mm. I had worked so hard to to build myself out of. 
And it's, it's unfortunate. Right. John Kapoor is, sen- is sentenced to five and a half years in prison. And, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, it's a white collar crime, according to the laws. It's not, it right. doesn't sound like a lot of time, but I'd just like to remind everybody, Purdue Pharma mm-hmm. did not get any jail time. It's right. something. Are we going to talk about that? We are. We will. We will. We will. Okay. After that sentencing, they just kind of state some facts and statistics which kind of blew my mind, but more than one, there's the amount of opiate prescriptions that have been prescribed. It's more than one prescription for every adult in the United States from 2006 Mm. to 2014, a hundred billion pills of opioids were sent out across the United States. The opioid companies literally tracked the abuse in a way that, because that they were encouraging across the nation. And Renazizi was ousted from the DA because he was starting to help small towns to sue opioid companies. Finally, mm. in 2019, two cases were about to go to trial in Ohio. But then, at the last minute, the opioid companies paid the fine to keep the evidence hidden and out of court. During the pandemic, as I said, opioid epidemic increased. And during the pandemic, news surfaced that the feds may bring more litigation charges against the Sackler family. Mm-hmm. The family and company that started it all. Late in 2020, the Trump administration had come out with a legal plea that said the Sackler family were to plead guilty to three felony counts, $225 million fine, and Purdue was to plead guilty to kickbacks and fraud and promised to pay fines that totaled over $8 billion. I think the actual number is $8.3 billion. It's mm. a lot. That's, that was the mm. sentencing that we needed all those years back. Mm-hmm. But Purdue is bankrupt and they only have one billion. Mm-hmm. And even that, there are other debtor creditors that are like fighting over this one billion dollars. So essentially that money mm-hmm. is never gonna get paid. In twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. Purdue has declared bankruptcy and they were allowed mm-hmm. to work while slowly paying off their debts to these different creditors. But the irony mm-hmm. is, in order to pay their fines, they need to make sales of oxy. In other words, the, mm. to pay for the opioid epidemic that they started, they sold more opioids. Mm. Around this time, the Sackler family stored away about $10 billion in overseas transactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were like they were pulling, pulling money. As, as they declared bankruptcy. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the, the latest. So actually, in, 20, in late 2020 and 2021, they were issued the litigation that I just said, but it actually got appealed. Mm-hmm. So they didn't it mm-hmm. it got off the table so here's the latest mm-hmm. that was this was just reported two days ago by cnn mm-hmm. it's titled a u.s bankru- bankruptcy judge approved purdue pharma and sackler's six billion settlement agreement with states connecticut attorney general says okay so i'm just going to read right. it go ahead a u.s bankruptcy judge approves a settlement that purdue pharma and the sackler families reached with a group of states that will require the sacklers to pay out as much as six billion to the states so they definitely negotiated down from the eight this mm. new agreement does not provide protection to the sackler families from any future criminal liability relating to the opioid crisis which is huge right no settlement will ever come close to addressing the magnitude of suffering and harm car- caused by purdue and the sackler family but in reaching the $6 billion settlement, we recognize that we could not stall this process forever for victims and our sister states. Mm-hmm. On a hearing on this, there will be a hearing on Thursday. Was that today? Because this was just that was today. Yeah. It just, just happened. happened. Yeah. Yep. 
On a hearing today on Thursday, March 10th, victims and survivors will have the opportunity to speak directly to the Sacklers and share the damage and destruction that they have caused. Mm-hmm. We're not done fighting for justice against the addiction industry. As part of the deals, I, I don't think this is a big deal, but in a way it is. The Sackler families will mm-hmm. allow any institution or organization nationwide to remove the Sackler name from any kind of facility. Yep, that's that was basically it. Yeah. So so from what I know, this is this is date today, March tenth, in this hearing. This is the first time ever that um victims are able to confront the Sackler family to their face because mm-hmm. in all these previous hearings or whatever's been happening in the bankruptcy yeah. court, the none of the victims have they have had the opportunity to see the right. Sackler family either because they, they the Sackler family is being represented by their mm-hmm. lawyers and they're not actually mm-hmm. there or like maybe victims weren't allowed in mm-hmm. court. So this is the first time that they can actually like confront them, which is huge. Honestly, like so, so big huge. for the victims. And then what I know about that appeal is that actually the appeal for the previous not appeal. It was there was a previous agreement in place up until December was it December? Yeah, up until December of 2021, just this past year, that that was overturned yeah. by mm-hmm. a judge. And the reason why this agreement was overturned, the particular agreement was overturned, is because in the agreement, it allowed for the Sacklers to get off scot-free yes. in terms of any like what's the terminology, liability any regarding the opioid crisis, liability or like to be to be declared mm-hmm. criminals or whatever right. criminal liability so a judge overturned that in december of 2021 right. and it's just today that they have finalized the agreement which is it a win i think that it is because there is probably going to be more to come once they pay out their six yep. billion obviously paying six billion will be a long process it's not just paid mm-hmm. in a day as like harini said but i do think that it's good that they no longer have that protection that they can't be brought to court on criminal right. charges right. so and um good on that judge definitely. to have overturned that in December. absolutely i was at first i was like what why would they overturn that but exactly to megan's point that key feature was which i think is more important than them paying the money the key feature is mm-hmm. like they should still be able to be prosecuted in future criminal charges against them related to the opioid crisis related to the opioid epidemic right. that's huge right. So what I'm hoping for, which hasn't happened this time, is still a huge win. It's a huge step forward. But I'd like to see some jail time, if possible. Yeah. So we'll see. That will be the ultimate win. And I even like I know how much how horrible they are and all the harm they did. And yet I still feel kind of icky being like wishing jail time on somebody. But I do kind of wish that I just. I just wish I didn't sound so like giddy about it. But yeah, I'm just like, let's do some jail time. Yeah, people. I mean, it, like like the people, the parents said, it, if this were a, a drug peddler or a drug cartel, they would be going to jail. You, What's the difference between you and them? Yeah. Yeah, if that one um, Caleb guy... Caleb, mm-hmm. that was his name, right? Is making a business out of his his backyard selling Chinese fentanyl. Also, imps or the insists. I'm gonna say this with slight admiration. What? Like, I'm impressed that he was making his own analogs. I'm I know. never was good at chemistry, so I'm like anyone that can do that shit. I'm like, damn, you are so passionate <laughs> about this drug through addiction that you became good at science. Right. That is maybe 
a very very small plus for that person <laughs> but um plus. yeah that's kind of crazy that he was making his own analogs right. uh but like if he's put to jail i'm like you know like someone in the sackler family multiple people yes need to go absolutely <laughs> i agree yeah so just to end we're at the end here of this three-part series but some numbers for our poison pals 487,842 overdose deaths involving opioids have occurred from 2000 to 2019 in the u.s alone mm-hmm. in 2019 10.1 million americans have misused opioids and 1.6 million are addicted I tried to do one of those things where I'm like, how much is 1 million people? Like, if you put 1 million people in a football stadium, like, how many football stadiums is that? I think it's always good to have, like, a visual of that, but Google did not help me. <laughs> My estimation, I know you want it, like, in a more finite receptacle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I always use, like, the population of Los Angeles as a backdrop to numbers Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. so the population of los angeles is almost four million people (sighs) so one a quarter of the population of los angeles has been impacted by the opioid crisis if you want to put it in that uh in that visual no that's a great visual yeah thank you megan and that's the that's the end i wish i could end it on a high i guess we kind of did end it on a i shouldn't say high I know, I know. Now I'm just like, every word sounds taboo, especially the word hi. <laughs> okay, so I will produce my sources. These are going to be the sources I used for all three episodes for the entire OxyCoffin series. You guys already know the first two Crime of a Century docu-series on HBO Max. And I didn't necessarily get info from this, but Dope Sick is a great introductory series if you want to know what the opioid epidemic was all about, especially the OxyContin scandal with the Sackler family, highly, highly recommend watching that. But as far as other sources, I have the following. I have an article from NPR titled Purdue Pharma Sackler's Reach Six Billion Deal with State Attorneys General, a New York Times article titled Sackler's and Purdue Pharma Reach New Deal with States Over Opioids. And this is by Jan Hoffman, an article by Stat News titled The History of OxyContin Told Through Unsealed Purdue Documents. And this is by two people, Shraddha Chakradar and Casey Ross. A New York Times article titled Origins of an Epidemic. Purdue Pharma Knew Its Opioids Were Widely Abused. I'm trying to see. And this is by Barry Meyer. An article by The New Yorker titled The Family That Built an Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. Politico magazine article titled They Were All Lawyered Up and Rudy Giuliani'd Up. <laughs> Love that title. And that's by Beth Macy. A New York Times article, Every Time I Thought the Purdue Pharma Oxycontin Story Was Over, I Was Wrong. And this was also by Barry Meyer. And I believe that's it. Uh, in addition to Wiki. So I wanted to quickly do a corrections corner before we round out this series. The first one, I believe I said it in the first part of the series. I said that Librium is no longer on the market as a drug, but it is. It is still an FDA approved medication. I believe you can still prescribe it. I don't know if it's prescribed that often, but it is um, still available. That's one. The second one is, I believe in the second part, I pronounced the 
the area or region of Appalachia wrong. I said Appalachia or Appalachian Mountains, but it is pronounced with a hard ch, which I knew. Uh, So I apologize to everyone who is from that region or knows about that region. It is the Appalachian region, Appalachian Mountains. And that is the area and region where it was really hit hard by the opioid epidemic. And lastly, when I was talking about uh, delayed delayed release or extended release drug formulations, I mentioned that you can safely assume that if there's not like an abbreviation at the end of the brand name, such as ER, DR, CR, etc., then you can safely assume that it's an immediate release formulation. However, that is not always the case. There are certain situations where the brand name does not have an abbreviation and it actually is an extended release formulation of the drug. So just note that I would say majority of cases, you can safely assume it's immediate release, but there are definitely some exceptions to that rule where the brand name does not have an abbreviation, but it's still considered to be an extended release drug. So those are my three corrections of myself. I hope that helps. And that's it. We'll continue on with the rest of the episode. Poor choice. On Poor a choice. lighter note. Yeah. We haven't done antidotes, I don't think, no. the last couple episodes. Yeah. And we've, I don't think so. Because we're just like, you know what, let's just wrap it up. We save all the goodness and the light stuff for this final episode in our three-parter. Yeah. I just want to say, Harini, thank you so much mm-hmm. for taking on this task. It's an incredibly important story. I've posted this in our Instagram feed whenever I post about each episode <laughs> on our OxyCoffin series. But we do encourage you to watch Dope Sick, not mm-hmm. only... Is it good portrayal of what happened with the Sackler family and the opioid Mm -hmm. epidemic? But also, like, it's just good writing. It's a good show. Michael Keaton won his award. Go watch it if you're into that stuff. Also, Crime of the Century adds a little bit more there as a supplement. What else? I think Um, those are two good ones to start out with, if anything. But I was going to say, Megan, have you seen the... Did you see his SAG Awards speech yet? No, I, I've read, read okay. parts of it or the, read the highlights yeah, and I heard that he got very impassioned mm-hmm. at the yeah, end. He did. So he did. Yeah. yeah. So that's a must watch yeah. if you guys have seen Dope Sick. But I was going to say, I think mm-hmm. we didn't do antidotes last episode because now it's I'm it's coming back to me. My memory has recalled. It's because I sing. <laughs> I sing my little song. <laughs> <laughs> my meth song. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, my yeah. god. That I never ended up looking that up after. I'm sorry. No, I'll have to I wanted to play it on the podcast, but I'm like, I don't think we have the rights, but it's quite yeah. catchy. So yeah. I'll have to send it to you offline. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. When you talked about meth song, I my brain automatically goes to third eye blinds, semi charmed life. Uh, yeah. The one goes Because that one that one is a song about meth, and I didn't realize that until, or pretty sure it's about meth. I know it's about drug okay. use, but I didn't know that until I was like well into my 20s and be like, wow, I really listened to that with my family in the car as a child and was like, this is the best <laughs> uppity song ever. Well, now I gotta listen um, to so, it because I've not ever really paid attention oh, to yeah. the lyrics that much. Yeah, look at the lyrics. I think they're they're not as explicit yeah, that as your meth very song, explicit. but they, they talk about addiction. Yeah, okay. I will. Maybe we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, I or I guess you can go do antidotes, and then I'll go afterwards. Okay, antidote. This was a super. It's a small thing. Yeah. But like, 
I'm proud of myself for speaking up. Yeah. <laughs> but I, as we know, mm-hmm. gas prices are rising. Yes. I'm still trying to understand the whole picture as to why gas prices are rising across the country. I know that it has to do with the war in Russia and Ukraine right now. But there is also a factor of natural inflation that has happened with the Mm -hmm. pandemic kind of becoming uh, less prominent. So supply is less than demand right now. And there's all that stuff in there. Anyway, so that's caused gas prices to rise. That's as much Mm -hmm. as I know. Do your research. (laughs) Don't take a word for that. That said... I recognized very quickly that my commute was going to eat my money because of the rise in gas prices. I think it's the average in San Diego right now is five sixty. Five dollar sixty cent slot. So I finally built up the courage to talk to my supervisor and was like, Can I finagle just working from home at least twice a week? Because this will just help me a lot if I don't you know it's just so much mm-hmm. money going towards mm-hmm. gas. And um, I was totally okay to work That's two, amazing, two days Megan. from home, which I know not everyone else gets that opportunity mm-hmm. because sometimes they're just their occupation might not allow it. But that said, that was just my own personal wow. antidote. I was happy that I was able to speak up yes. for myself. Yeah. And that was that. That's it. <laughs> Megan, I'm so glad you shared that because I think a lot of people... And this could go for any kind of situation, but I think a lot of people are just afraid to speak up at work oftentimes, mm-hmm. uh, especially to their mm-hmm. managers or even like higher ups because they're just afraid of getting mm-hmm. that no. And to be honest, like right, right. you don't know unless you ask, you know, and right. you and you are probably going to be glad that you asked at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I am. It's one of those things where the worst that can ever happen is a no. It would be totally unfortunate if they gave you a no but then some some reason kept it in their brains and like used it to like yeah. judge you as an employee that would be fucked up and i'm an optimist yeah. and i feel like most people <laughs> would not do that but also even if they said no everyone's kind of in the same struggle and it's like i'm sure that would get their brains thinking of like oh man like yes. i gotta fill my car up soon and that yeah. is kind of cutting into you know just my pay so i don't know it might get some Absolutely. people's brains thinking so that's such a great point, Megan. Like, even if they say no, mm-hmm. it if you raise it, mm-hmm. now it's in their brain, right? Yeah. Like, now it's like, okay, my employee, this is big enough an issue for them to actually raise it with me. It must right. actually be a bigger thing. Right. Uh, and I, I will tell you, I love asking for things at work. <laughs> I, I ask for things willy-nilly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, half the time I get a no, I will be honest, half the time I get a no, but I'm like, eh, I'm glad I asked. Yeah, you asked. Now I know. Yeah, yeah. Now I know. But now they understand like, oh, this is a thing that I'm curious about or asking for. And maybe down the line, they will say yes for to somebody else. Right. right. Yeah. That's all that matters. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Good job, Megan. I'm proud oh, of you. you. Thank you. <laughs> what about you? Save that money. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, Hopefully. Anyway, what's your antidote? Uh, my, my antidote has to be, and I think she'll kill me if I don't say it. Just kidding. Medina, I love you. <laughs> Medina. It was having Medina over. She was my very first guest Yay. over, my first overnight guest at the the new place. Mm-hmm. And she came over. I made dinner for her. She brought her laundry over. That's I'm totally so like nice. outing. <laughs> she brought her massive stack of laundry. Um, but I was so happy to have her over because Dave is gone. 
this week and it was the first time like staying at the new place by myself and I'm like oh, I was okay with it but it, it was infinitely better to have like a friend over than just hang out with um so and it's been a while since we've hung out so it was lovely per usual in Medina that's so great we yeah. love Medina <laughs> we love and I would love to watch her fold laundry I feel like she would <laughs> just look so peaceful doing it with a big oh smile on her face oh yeah oh I was so I guess like she had so much laundry that some of it didn't get dry and she left oh, work yeah. really early in the morning like real early uh yeah. like 6 a.m and I was bleary-eyed but I like I I'm that kind of person like I can't I don't feel good if I don't say bye. So I right. get my ass oh, totally. up and yeah. I just say goodbye, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I guess in, in the bleary, cause she was also dead tired too. Right. And she's like, uh, I think she said that she's like, can you turn on the dryer at some point? Mm. Did not register that piece of information. <laughs> I went straight, took my ass straight to sleep and then went about my normal bullshit during the day. And then she comes all the way back home at like 3, 4 p.m. to my place and be like, did you turn on the dryer? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, I'm so sorry. Oh, She's like, it's okay. No. Guess we are going to hang out for another 40 minutes. <laughs> I was like, this is all my ploy to keep oh, you here longer. Right. <laughs> It was turned into a positive. She was yeah. like, you know what? That I, we're just going to hang out longer. Yeah, we're That's just going to hang out. And we did. We had we had more fun together. So. Oh, good. good. <laughs> That's uh, my antidote. That's such a blast. Uh, I love love her. Love the energy she brings. Love hanging out with you both. One yeah. day I'll come visit soon. Yeah. Soon. Dude, Anyways. yeah, you need to come soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so thanks long. for listening all. <laughs> no, I know. We're like just drifting off into space yeah. now. Uh, you want to take us away? Yeah, don't risk it for that dance club slash five star steak dinner biscuit. (laughs) Hell no. (laughs) It ain't good for you. Bye. (laughs) Bye.